If there is no resurrection of the dead, we are a pitiful people. We have believed a lie. We have placed our hope in an event that at this point in time causes us to be willing to sacrifice the things that this world has to offer, pleasures that certainly appeal to our flesh. We are convinced that there is something lying before us that just is not there if there is no resurrection of the dead. But Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And because he rose, we too shall rise. And our absolute confidence and our absolute hope, which is a settled assurance, is focused upon the reality of Christ's resurrection and the guarantee that that gives to those who know him as Savior and are identified with him by the ministry of the Holy Spirit who baptizes us into Him because He lives, we too shall live. That's the premise of everything that we've been looking at here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And as we go back in our mind's eye over the past few weeks, we would recognize that Paul is giving an apologetic, a defense for the reality of the resurrection. And he does it very logically, as he does with so much of the Scripture. He tells us that what we can count upon is this, that there is evidence that verifies the resurrection is going to take place. That reality had been taught throughout history. The Old Testament prophets taught about the resurrection. When we came to the New Testament, the writers of the New Testament Scriptures taught that there was a resurrection, and so we had that testimony. But to add to that testimony was the reality that there were individuals who had experienced death, who were brought back to life, not to remain forever in the state in which they had been resurrected, because they would die again. The widow's son, the Shunammite's son, Jairus' daughter, Lazarus, they were resurrected to life following their death, but they would die again. But their resurrection gave evidence to the fact that what the prophets had been teaching was absolutely true. And what we embrace as our hope for eternity is absolutely true. In addition to that, Paul began the first part of this chapter by taking our minds back to the resurrection of Christ. And he said this, listen, you all know that Christ rose from the dead. And our resurrection is connected with his. And the verification of his resurrection comes from the testimony of people who saw him alive. And they are not liars. You know these people. These are good people. And he appeared to over 500 different individuals, most of whom were still alive to that day. And if you questioned the resurrection of Christ, all you had to do was go talk to them. And so you have this mounting evidence of the resurrection of Christ and of the reality of the resurrection that we will experience. And then, of course, Paul himself, as he is teaching in this portion of Scripture, but elsewhere in Scripture, taught the resurrection as well. Not only do we have that evidence, but we recognize how important it is to all that we call the faith 
to realize the resurrection is true. If the resurrection is not true, then there are certain realities that we have to come to grips with. Preaching is meaningless. The whole purpose of preaching is to present facts, to present information that people embrace in belief and have their lives impacted because of that belief. Well, then why are we even here if there's no resurrection? I mean, I'm telling you right now, there is a resurrection coming. If that's not true, go home. Take me off this platform. Put me out to sea. And forget about anything we've ever talked about. In addition to that, because the writers of Scripture are the ones who told us about the resurrection, we can't take their word for anything. Because if they lied about the resurrection, then all the rest of what they wrote about is is suspect. We really can't depend upon them. And Scripture itself is no longer a standard by which we fashion our lives. But worst of all, there's no hope of salvation. There's no forgiveness of sin because God the Father did not accept the sacrifice of Christ on the cross if Christ did not rise from the dead. It was His resurrection that proved to us that His sacrifice was totally accepted by a holy God who now will impart and impute to those who trust Christ the Savior a righteousness that's equal with His own. Paul is going to tell the the Corinthians about that in the second letter that he sends to them. And he will verify that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them when they trust in him for their forgiveness of sins and for their eternal life. If the resurrection didn't happen, then that's not true. We're still in our sins and we have no hope. Let's go home. But we read something that contradicts All of that. Verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead. There's the truth. That means that preaching is essential. Because we must communicate the truths of God's word in a forum where people will hear, will evaluate whether or not that which is being preached is true by virtue of comparing what is said with the Scriptures, and if it is true, by having their minds convinced that these things which are true are the standards by which our lives should be regulated. And the reality of what we believe can be settled. It means not only that is preaching necessary, but the Scriptures are totally reliable. We can open the Scriptures with complete confidence that what God has to say is exactly accurate and truthful. And by the way, just as a side note, is scientifically accurate as well. I've been hearing recently people saying, well, uh, how can you believe the Bible if you believe science? Because the two are absolutely harmonious. True science lines up with the Scriptures. The contradiction comes with scientism, which is a belief system that is contrary to the Scriptures and it is not based upon science. 
Science is verified by the scriptures, and the scriptures are verified, though they don't need it, by true science. Just thought I'd throw that out in case you've been hearing that. I've been hearing that a lot recently. Having said that, we have hope. We have a settled assurance. We know that our Savior is alive. And because He lives, we too shall live. Now let's go on to a third element that we cover in these verses that we read today. And this involves the certainty of the resurrection itself based upon a variety of different elements that we begin reading about here in verse 21. Verse 21 tells us this. And in fact, I'm going to go back to the second half of verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So the certainty of our resurrection is based upon Christ being the first fruits. If we are to, in our recollection, go back to the law to understand why this concept of the first fruits is so important, we understand that when God called the people of Israel apart to be His people, He put restrictions upon their lives. He, he gave them certain standards by which to live, and He gave them laws that they were to follow. Those laws would not bring any of them to eternal life. But those laws would demonstrate their inability to keep a righteous standard that God requires, and consequently the law would become a schoolmaster that would bring them to the place where their faith would be directed toward that which God had promised them. And they would embrace by faith the truths that God has given, and by His grace would provide salvation. Today, our faith is directed to the person of Christ, and by virtue of that faith and where it terminates, where it is directed, the Lord promises our forgiveness and our eternal life. What the Lord established in the law were certain pictures, and one of the pictures He gave was this. When you plant your crops, the harvest is going to come over a period of time. When the first element of the harvest comes, the first fruits, I want you to harvest those and bring them in sacrifice to me. The reason I want you to do that is several fold. There are a variety of facets to that. One is this that you are declaring your understanding that what you have has come from my hand. I am the one who has provided it. But in addition to that, it also is a demonstration of your willingness to believe this. By giving the first fruits, in my heart I absolutely believe that the rest of the harvest is going to follow. And so I bring that, and, and for us today, the way we would see this is the way the Lord wants us to handle the, the finances that He gives us, the material things. The first goes to the Lord. Now I realize in practice that that's not often the way it goes. Uh, it's, it's hard for people to realize that the first is the Lord's. It seems that so often it's whatever's left is the Lord's, and that's, that's not the Lord's way. The Lord's way is first we give to Him because it is a demonstration of our confidence in His ability to provide everything that we need. Having said that, we come back now to the first fruits of the harvest. When Paul uses this expression, 
Christ the first fruits. He is saying this is the first dimension of the resurrection that is guaranteeing that the rest of the resurrection is going to take place. And so when you look at Christ being the first fruits, you are essentially saying this. Okay, because he's the first fruits, we now understand that the rest of the resurrection is going to follow. And we're going to be part of it. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on and he talks about how Christ is the head. Look at what he says in verse 22. Uh, pardon me. Uh, verse 21 and, and verse 22. He says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Now he's going to draw our minds into the, the focus of understanding who these men are that are being spoken about. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. The certainty of our resurrection is based not only on Christ being the first fruits, but on Christ being our head. And here's the example he uses. When you were conceived naturally, when your parents conceived you, they conceived one whose ancestry can be traced all the way back to Adam. Now, if somebody presses me and says, well, can you do that? No, no, I can't do that. But here's what I do know. All of humanity has descended from Adam and Eve. All of humanity. And by virtue of that descent, we are identified with Adam as our head. The Bible tells us, by one man... Sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And death has passed upon all men, in that all sinned. Now when you read that, it's possible to misunderstand it and look at it as if that final sinned is an expression of the acts that we commit. But that is not what that is talking about. What it's talking about is our identification with our head, who is Adam. When he sinned, we all fell. We all became sinners. Who Adam is, is in us. And that's why the psalmist could say in Psalm chapter 51, In sin did my mother conceive me. At the moment of conception, there was a nature that was part of my being, not only that my whole physical being was present in an undeveloped form. Everything, everything I ever became was there at the moment I was conceived. It's why we believe abortion's wrong. We believe that at the moment of conception, you're human. And... And you are everything you're ever going to be, except you're just not fully developed. But your, your uh, what do you call it, the uh, DNA. All the DNA is there. <laughs> you, all, you all recognize what that was? Okay, that's good. All the DNA was there. Everything that we are ever going to be, it just has to develop. So, 
physically, everything was there. All of this body was there. Do you know how hard it is to keep this body in shape? I do work out. You don't get a body like this by accident. No comments. No comments. All right. But more than just the physical body, everything I am in soul and spirit was there as well. And my spirit, my soul, was dead in sin. So that when Adam sinned, I sinned. By one man sin entered into the world, death by sin, and so death passed upon all men in that all sinned. Back to Adam. I was there. I am born a sinner. I am conceived a sinner, and I commit acts of sin because of who and what I am. I'm identified with my head. And because of my identification with Adam as my head, Death is going to be my experience. Listen, you all understand. For all of us, things are going to end badly. One day you're going to get the the diagnosis. Please sit down. I have some bad news. You have a very aggressive form of cancer. Or one day the phone call will come to those that are your loved ones. I have some very terrible news. There's been an awful accident. Or whatever the case might be. Your son lost his life fighting for our freedom. It ends badly. That's death. But that is the only death with which we are involved. Because of our identification with Adam... There is a second death that will impact every one of our lives apart from our identification with Jesus Christ. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Revelation. First of all, let's go to Revelation, the second chapter. In Revelation chapter 2, we read this in verse 11. Here, John is writing to us about the the church of Smyrna. And he speaks about what they are going through as a church. And he tells them not to fear about those things that they are going to suffer. And then he says this in verse 11. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Wait a minute. One's not enough? No, there's two. There is the separation of the soul and spirit from the body. That's death. Death doesn't mean you go out of existence. It means your soul and spirit are separated from your body. The second death is also a separation. And it's the separation of every individual who does not know Christ as Savior from the presence and the blessing and the 
the good things that God has in store for those who know Christ. Listen to what it goes on to say in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, verse 14. It's speaking here about the great white throne judgment. And it says in verse 14, Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. If you read the verses just prior to that, it says that everyone whose name was not found written in the Lamb's book of life are the ones who are cast into the lake of fire. The second death is separation as well. It's separation from the very presence of God. Go over to chapter 21 and look at verse 8. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. It doesn't end well. It doesn't end well in this life, and it doesn't end well in the next life for those who don't know Christ. We all experience the first death by virtue of our identification with Adam. But the second death can be avoided if we embrace a different head. Go back to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and look at what he says. As in Adam, all die. So in Christ... All shall be made alive. Oh, wait a minute. You mean this resurrection of Jesus Christ has a benefit that comes to us when we are identified with Him as our head? That's the whole point. Unless we come by faith to embrace Christ as our Savior, then our head is Adam. And all of the dimensions and all of the elements of death we experience because of our identification with Him. But if, by faith, we find a new head, as the Bible describes it elsewhere, a second Adam, all those who are in Him now experience life. How do we find ourselves in Christ? It is a spiritual work that takes place the moment we trust Christ as our Savior. The Holy Spirit of God places us into the body of Christ so that when the Father looks at us, He no longer sees us under the headship of Adam. He sees us under the headship of His Son. And the way Paul put it in the 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, by one Spirit... Are we all baptized into one body? That is not speaking about the water baptism. It is speaking about the spirit baptism. That spiritual result that occurs when we trust Christ. Having now been placed into the body of Christ. And looking up to our head. And now I'm identified with him. In Christ all shall be made alive. Because he lives, I too shall live. He's my head. By faith in him, there's life.
There's the guarantee of the resurrection. Christ rose. I'm going to rise too. See, when he died, I died to sin with him. When he was buried, I was buried with him. When he rose again from the dead, I rose again with him. And now within me, there is resurrection life. I'm coming out of the grave, folks. And if you know Christ, well, you know what? I, let me just tell you the truth. You all are too. I just hope you're coming out at the right time. Because there is a variety of occasions in which people are coming out of the grave. And that's what Paul goes on to say in the next verses. Look with me, if you will, please, down here to verse uh, 23, where he tells us this. Not only is our certainty based upon Christ being the first fruits and based upon Christ being our head, but it's also based upon Christ being part of God's prophetic plan. Our resurrection falls within what God has planned. Verse 23, but each one in his own order. Now here again, he brings our minds back to what he has already introduced to us back there in verse 20. He says in verse 23, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. So here's what I'm looking forward to. Now, now folks, here's the deal. What I just told you about it always ending badly, there is an exception to that. And the exception is if we are alive when Jesus Christ returns. Because there is going to be a resurrection that is the next event on Christ's prophetic calendar. And that resurrection is what we call the rapture. First Christ, the first fruits. Then Paul writes about this in 1 Thessalonians. You can turn there if you wish, or you can listen as I read this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. All right? If things end badly, if we die in this life, then we go to be with the Lord, as Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And then the Lord says, okay, it's time. Nobody knew when this was going to occur, but now it's time. I'm going back to receive my church to myself. And those of you who are part of the church, who have, and I'm speaking now of the body of Christ, not just the local congregation, but the, what we would call the universal church, where believers all over the face of the globe are present with the Lord if they've gone through the portals of physical death, but some of the church is still here and still still alive. And so the Lord says, okay, let, let's go get them. Let's, let's get everybody home right now. So we which have been with the Lord already will be part of this event that Paul is describing. For this we say to you by the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. And you all understand that when the Bible speaks about being asleep in the context of a believer, it's speaking about their being dead from the human point of view. But, but the body is just asleep because it's going to be resurrected. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise 
first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Do you, do you get the picture of this? The believers with Christ enjoying the benefits of knowing now's the time. He's going to get the rest of the church. The trump of God sounds. The voice of the archangel cries out. And the dead in Christ rise first. Then those who are alive. And here's where we may escape that bad ending. If we are alive when Christ comes, we go to meet the Lord without going through the pattern of death. And we've got a couple examples of that already. A guy by the name of Enoch didn't die. He just went to be with the Lord. A guy by the name of Elijah didn't die. He just went to be with the Lord. So the Lord's given us these little appetizers along the way. It's like, oh, the main course is coming. Get ready. All you had was the shrimp. But now you're getting the prime rib. Here it comes. And we are with the Lord. Just like that. The dead in Christ shall rise. I, this is just awful. Back in Michigan, there was a, a cemetery in which a number of the people of our church had been buried. But this particular cemetery had a whole area that was reserved for pastors. And they would bury pastors. And I have to tell you the truth. When the rapture occurs, I would like to be standing there and see which ones are resurrected and which ones are not. I know that's awful. I shouldn't be that way. But I won't have time to do that because I'll be gone right away anyhow. The dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive shall be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. That's only the second part of the resurrection. Christ the first fruits. But the first resurrection has three parts. What happens after the resurrection of believers and the ascension of the church to be with the Lord forever? Things are still going on here on earth. And shortly after that event takes place, there is going to be an agreement signed between a leader in the country of Israel and the Antichrist. And that agreement will be a false document guaranteeing Israel's safety. And when that document is signed an event known as the tribulation begins and it continues for seven years. During that period of time, all the believers have been taken. But there is left behind copies of the scriptures, tapes of sermons, videos where the word of God has been proclaimed faithfully by men who today perhaps are quite famous, but their, their messages are left behind. The gospel tracts are left behind. 
the journals that have been written in are left behind and people will begin reading. And then the Lord is going to send two witnesses. And then there are going to be 144,000 Jews who are going to be sealed for the purpose of testifying to the reality of who Jesus Christ is. But things aren't going to go well for them. Because the enemy of the gospel and the enemy of Christ is going to seize power in the middle of that tribulation period. And many, many, many of those people are going to sacrifice their lives because they will not subscribe to the demands of the Antichrist. They will not embrace the mark of the beast so that they can carry on their trade and carry on with merchandise. They are going to lose their lives. And then the Lord says, now, the last part of the first resurrection is going to take place. And here's where it's described. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. He is speaking about the physical resurrection because those who had not accepted Christ are alive in hell. But their bodies have not been resurrected. This is the first resurrection. Do you you see this? Wait a minute. Christ the first fruits, the church at the rapture, and now those who were killed for the cause of Christ during the tribulation, and yet it's called the first resurrection. Yes! Why? Because it is all part of the identification with Christ in His resurrection. Old Testament saints will be resurrected at this time. Those who die during the tribulation will be resurrected at this time. So that everybody that has died as a believer will be included in what is called the first resurrection, but it occurs in three stages. Christ the firstfruits, then those whom he comes to gather as part of the church, then those who go through the tribulation period along with the Old Testament saints. Do you remember that the tribulation period is the, the culmination of Daniel's 70th week in which God is working with the people of Israel? And so now the Old Testament saints are identified along with those who lose their lives during this last part of God's working with Israel as a people and they are part of the first resurrection because of their identification with Christ. Does this make sense? Am I, is this clear enough? Three different events, all part of the first resurrection. That's part of God's prophetic plan. Uh, I didn't finish this passage here in Revelation 20. It says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Oh, so there are still dead people that haven't been resurrected. Yep. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. What this introduces now is the beginning of the millennial kingdom. So, Christ's resurrection 2,000 years ago. Our resurrection or being caught up alive to meet the Lord in the air at His timing, whenever He chooses. 
Seven years of tribulation, another resurrection of believers, but those who lost their lives during the tribulation period and now are resurrected along with those who previously to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ had believed as Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. They now are identified in this third. So now what you have are believers all having been resurrected from all the ages, being part of the first resurrection. The second resurrection is just the opposite. Because now there is going to be a thousand year reign where perfection is part of the, of the day during the Christ's reign here on earth. And the environment will be changed and there will be a government that is really honest and good. And for a thousand years, but some people will still not believe. So at the end of a thousand years, there will be a rebellion against Christ. And he will return in this, what we call the battle of Armageddon, to crush this resistance against him. But it's not going to be much of a battle. It's over. And then the Bible tells us will be the final resurrection. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Hey, wait a minute. Doesn't the Bible say it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy that He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit? Yeah, that's what the Bible says. Well, why are their works being judged? Because there are people who will, in their mind, believe that, hey, they're okay. Uh, I mean, if anybody should get to heaven, I should, because I'm really, I'm, I'm a good neighbor. I, I, I keep the weeds out of my yard. I don't beat my dog. I don't beat my wife. I, I'm really kind of a good person. I, I, I don't steal from anybody, and, you know, I, I must be okay. And then the books are open, and people are judged according to their works. You violated God's holiness here. You violated God's standards here here you did this and as the books are open and people see the reality of their lives they recognize how sinful they are that within them there is no righteousness there is nothing to commend them to god there's none that do good no not one so now it's proven you're no good by the way i'm no good in myself but I have God's righteousness because of my identification with Christ. And if you know Christ as your Savior, you do too. He's my head. It's because of Him I have life. And so now, these people, it's proven that by their works, what they were in their heart. And when that is done, there's a shift. And the shift moves from the book of their works to this book. Verse 13. 
The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. If you know Christ as Savior, your name's in the book of life. If you don't, it's not. This is the second resurrection. This leads to the second death. Why is the resurrection so important? Because everyone is going to experience it. Some to life, some to separation and eternal torment. Cast into the lake of fire that was specifically prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who followed him when he rebelled, when he fell from heaven, and those who joined him in that rebellion will now be joined with those who reject the truth of who Jesus Christ is and say, no, I'm going to try to make it on my own. You can't do it. You can't do it. The only way you're ever going to experience eternal life is by being identified with Jesus Christ. And that identification comes when you, by faith, embrace Him as your Savior. And you, you stop calling God a liar. Because God said, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. One day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's going to come out of your mouth whether you believe now or not. If you do not believe now, your end is is with the devil and his angels. If you accept Christ as your Savior, your eternity is with the Father. To enjoy Him and to worship Him forever. What will you decide? What will you decide? You can trust Christ right now. It's a tradition in many churches to ask people to walk to the front to accept Christ. But I want to tell you the truth. The truth is, that is not a necessity. It's good. Nothing wrong with it. But I want you to understand that it's not anything you do. It's what you believe. And where you are right now, you can lift your heart to the Lord and say, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm identified with my head, Adam, and in Him, I will perish. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that He was buried. And I believe He rose from the dead. And I am resting in Him and Him alone for my forgiveness and for my eternal life. That's what I believe. If you really believe that, the Lord says you pass from death into life. I would ask you to do it as we close. Will you stand with me?
Father, we would have no other way of knowing what your plan and purpose is apart from that which you have revealed in your word. And Father, I pray that the truth of your word may have been accurately proclaimed today. I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would have freedom to work in hearts even now. And Lord, I would pray that anyone who entered this building, being identified only with Adam, would leave here being identified with Jesus Christ through faith. Thank you that it is your grace that reaches down into our hearts and forgives and grants eternal life. I pray, Father, that as we go from here this day, you may be pleased. In Jesus' name, amen.